The scripture reading this morning is from Psalms 97, verses 10 through 12. Let those who love the Lord hate evil, for he guards the lives of his faithful ones and delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is shed upon the righteous and joy on the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, you who are righteous, and praise his holy name. Today is a bittersweet day. Uh, we say thank you. Uh, that's the sweet part. And the bitter part is the, the goodbye uh, to Maggie and Nolan. They, uh, our summer interns, have done a phenomenal work in ministry with our young people. If you're like me, you don't have a, a child in the youth group anymore, so we're not as in touch with all that's going on. Uh, but trust me, a lot of great things have happened this summer, and we're in for a treat. This morning, uh, Nolan... Uh, and Bo are going to be our speakers, and they're going to talk to us uh, from Scripture. And so, uh, Nolan, uh, we'll give you and Bo the rest of the time. Uh, we're going to be in Luke chapter 15 today. That's going to be our text. Uh, and we're going we're gonna to go on a little bit of a journey through this text. Uh, before we get started with that, I just want to express my thanks. Uh, thank you to the West Seventh family, uh, to this church, for taking me and Maggie in and, and making us family. It really does mean so much, so much to us. We've been on quite a journey this summer. Uh, what I mean by that is, like, physically, we've been on a journey. We got here, and we started, and girls and guys split up, and we went on uh, a man retreat and a girl retreat, and, and then straight from there, we had about two days off, and we went over to Freed Hardeman in Henderson, Tennessee, uh, for go camp, and then... From Go Camp, we had like two days, and then we went to Murray Christian Camp. And then, from Murray Christian Camp, we didn't even come back to Columbia. We went straight to Lipscomb and to hang out with some of our kids there at camp. And then, we had like, get this, four whole days back in Columbia. And then, we were off again to Searcy, Arkansas. And then, after that, we had two days, and we headed down to the beach with our juniors and seniors. So... <laughs> That was just the month of June. So, so it really has been quite a journey this summer, but, but I'm so thankful for it, and, and it's, been, it's truly been a blessing on my life. Uh, so let me ask you something. Uh, how, how many people in here have been, have been on a journey before? And what I mean by a journey is like a physical journey where you took a road trip or you went on a vacation or maybe even just like a, a bike ride down the street. How many people have been on a journey? All right. Now, I want you to raise your hand again if you've ever been on a journey where everything has gone exactly like it's planned. Some of you are like putting your hands down on the ground. Like, if you're like me, you're like, no, nothing ever goes like, like it's planned to go on a journey. So, uh, before I get into the story, I feel like I need to tell you a disclaimer. Uh, this story is one of the many stories that helps me confirm that God wants me to do church work, and that's because He has blessed me with a very unique ability, and that unique ability is to get myself into some pretty terrible situations, to be able to come out of those terrible situations without being injured or killed or otherwise, and then to be able to turn those situations into spiritual applications. So I just feel like that's a disclaimer before we get started on the story. So, we're on a youth group trip, we, we, we've gone on a journey to the beach, and we're on the way there, and 
While we're on the way there, we hit some traffic. And it's like standstill traffic. You're going to be in, a, in this for an hour type traffic. And so we're in there, and, and somebody in the youth group who uh, is going to remain unnamed, just kidding, it's Michael Thomas, um, <laughs> had to go to the bathroom really badly. And, and usually I would just say, hey, just hold it, man. Like, like, we can get to the next exit. You're going to be okay. But this was different. We were in standstill traffic. We weren't going anywhere. So I was like, all right, if we move a little bit and we get to a spot where it looks like it's okay to get out and pull over, I'll pull over for you and let you go in the woods. So, <laughs> so, so I pull over on the side of the road, and Michael gets out. And I kid you not, as soon as Michael gets out, traffic starts moving. So I'm supposed to be following Bo at this point, and Bo, and Bo gets, gets going, and he goes a long way off, and I'm like, Michael, get back in here, and he's like, dude, I can't just stop doing my thing. So, so <laughs> it seemed like about 10 minutes, but it was probably more like 10 seconds, and he gets back in the bus, and, and I go into like Jeff Gordon mode, and, and so I'm like, oh, we got to catch up to Bo. So, so I get back into traffic, and, and I may or may not have been speeding a little bit, and I may or may not have accidentally cut someone off. And y'all are out there, like parents are out there like, man, we let this dude drive our kids around all summer. Who do we hire as an intern? What's going on? So I can assure you that it wasn't completely my fault. My blinker was on like for 10 seconds. And anyways, so I accidentally cut somebody off. And I didn't think much of it. I've done it before. It was an accident. And we get to the beach, and Bo has an email from Randy. And it says, hey, Bo, uh, I got an awkward message here at the church. And we got a call that said somebody was driving one of our vans recklessly. And I was like, uh, that was me. And so, man, that's so embarrassing. So... It wasn't all my fault. He was the one that was really driving recklessly because he physically had to take his phone out of his pocket, look at the number on the church van, read the number, dial the phone while he's driving. Okay, so it wasn't all me. I tell you that to say that we had planned on going down to the beach. We had planned on going on a journey to the beach. And something went wrong on the way. Uh, like so many things do when we go on journeys. Uh, Luke chapter 15, and that's the text we're going to be in today. Um, Luke chapter 15, uh, I want to start with verses 1 and 2. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. You see... The Pharisees, and I know you've heard this so many times, the Pharisees thought that tax collectors and sinners, that people, weren't, that, that, that people who didn't look as good as them, didn't appear to be like them, didn't know the Bible back and forth like they did, didn't know the law of Moses back and forth like they did, were worthless. They thought they were literally worthless. So they're dogging Jesus, and they're like, why are you even teaching these people? These people don't even deserve to be taught the Word of God. And then Jesus tells three stories about three journeys. And in, in these stories, He tells them to explain why 
we need to go tell people about Jesus. And the, fir- the first story he tells is about one lost sheep, and a shepherd goes out and finds that sheep. And he goes on a journey to bring the sheep back, and he says, that's what God does. When there's one lost sinner, when there's one lost person, He wants us to go out and get that one lost person, even when there's 99 unlost people. And then the next story, he tells a story about a woman who loses a coin in her house. And then she sweeps through the whole house. She tears her house apart to find that one little coin. One coin. And when she gets that coin, she calls up all of her friends and she's like, hey, I found my coin. Y'all come have a party. Let's celebrate. And, And Jesus says, that's what the kingdom of heaven is like when one lost person returns home. Those are the journeys that, that we're going to focus in on today. The journey we're going to focus in on is not a journey of us going out to lost people, which is so important. And that's why I talked about the first two stories. But the journey we're going to talk about this morning is a journey about coming back to God. Us going on a journey back to God. So follow along with me. Uh, Luke chapter 15, verse 11 says, to illustrate the point further, Jesus told them a story. A man who had two sons, the younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So the father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. So this son walks up to his dad and he's like, let me be real with you, I kind of wish you were dead. I kind of wish you were dead so I could go go ahead and have your money. In fact, you're dead to me. This is a guy's father. He says, you're dead to me. Give me what you have and let me go. And so the father says, okay, if that's how you really feel, I'll divide my wealth and give you your peace. And it's easy to look at this story. I feel like I have to say this before we go on because it's easy to look at this story and be like, how can you do that? Why are you going to tell your father that? I want you to realize that Jesus tells this story to show that We are that son. We are that son. That's what sin is. Sin is literally when we say to the Father, you know what? You're dead to me. You've given me everything in this life. You've given me everything that I could ever want. You have literally given me life. But I want to go out into the world and I want to take what you've given me and I want to spend it and I want to go away from you and spend what you've given me in the world. That's what sin is. So we are the son in this story. So I want to look at this story through the son's eyes for the rest of the way. Uh, I want you to follow along with me in verse 13. It says, A few days later, the son packed all of his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all of his money in wild living. I want you to notice at the very beginning of the verse it says, A few days later. I want to stop there. I just I noticed this the other day when I was reading through this passage and I was like, you know, I wonder if the son ever stopped and said, Alright, I, I just asked my father if I can leave. Uh, I just I just asked him for everything he's got. I just told him he's dead to me. But I wonder if he ever sat in the house and said, You know what? I've got it pretty good here. But the Bible doesn't say that he did that. And I, sometimes I want to like shake him and be like, just look around, see what you've got. 
the Bible doesn't say that he did that. I think his mind was so fixated on his sin, his mind was so fixated on getting in the world and doing what he wanted to do that he didn't realize how great it was already in the Father's house. And then it says that he packed all of his belongings and moved to a distant land. Some of us are in a distant land this morning. Some of us have been in a distant land, away from God, outside of the Father's house. Some of us are there right now. And your distant land doesn't have to be spending your money on wild living. Your distant land could be spending your money on material things instead of spending your money on things to support the kingdom. Your, your distant land could be putting your trust in something other than God to take care of your relationships, to take care of your marriages. Your distant land could be not living your, trying to raise your kids in the church but, but not living it out yourself. Your distant land could be putting on church clothes on Sunday mornings, showing up to church, acting like you can do the church thing, and then living in the distant land for the other six days of the week. What, what, what's your distant land this morning? Sometimes I think we look at this story and we say, oh, he left the Father's house, he went out and partied, he's stupid. No, we're stupid. We're the son in this story. We've all been to a distant land at some point in our life. And here's the deal. You, you can go on a journey. And you're always on a journey because there's only two ways you can journey. You can journey towards the Father or you can journey away from the Father. Where have you been journeying lately? Next verse. Uh, says in verse 14, and this is where the story, this is where his journey goes wrong. This is where something that he didn't plan for happens. Verse 14, about the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. Uh, sorry, skip this, skip this uh, line. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him to feed the pigs. The man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. This is where it goes wrong. You see, he didn't go out and say, hey, I'm going to take all my father's money, I'm going to take what I have, and I'm going to go waste it in the world, and then you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to run out of money, and then I'm going to starve, and then I'm probably going to want to eat what the pigs are eating. He didn't plan on this to happen. He didn't plan on a famine coming. But I want you to notice something. When you leave the Father's house, there's always more than you bargained for. You will always get more than you bargained for. Verse 17. When he finally came to his senses, and I want to pause right there. If you've been in a distant land, if you've gone on a journey away from God instead of towards God, and you're coming to your senses right now, I want you to notice what the son does when he comes to his senses. It says, when he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am, dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. He says, even the servants in my father's house 
have more than anything that this world can offer me. Even the servants. And in his way of thinking, he says, and I may never be a son again, but maybe I can get back to the house and be a servant. This is the part I want you to notice. When he came to his senses, this is the part I want you to notice right here. This is what he does. It says, verse 20, so he got up and returned home to his father. So he got up. He didn't sit there and say, you know what, I'll go home tomorrow if I feel like it. You know what, I'll sit here and I'll try to figure out a way out of this and if I can't find another way, then I'll go home. No, he said, he comes to his senses, so he got up. If you have come to your senses this morning, you're in a distant land and you need to travel back home to the Father, you need to go on a journey back home to the Father, Get up. Get up. He's with you. I want to tell the rest of the story uh, through the son's eyes. The son's weak. Uh, He's battered. He's broken. He's been living with pigs. He's probably lost a lot of weight because he hadn't had anything to eat. He looks like a completely different person. And he gets up. And he's already slapped the father in the face and said, you're dead to me. But he starts journeying home. And on the journey home, I want to put myself in his shoes. Uh, so we're the son now. Uh, I'm journeying home to the father. Uh, as I'm journeying home, I start thinking about all the things that I've done, all, all the terrible things that I've done to him and done with his money and waste the, the life that he has given me. And I wonder if he can really take me back. I wonder what he's going to say when I get there and he sees me. Is he going to hit me? Is he going to push me away? Is he going to close the gates? Is he even going to recognize me? And so I start walking back. And I'm on this journey back. And as I'm on this journey I see all the places that I I journeyed to in the past and and all the places that I've been and all the places that I wasted my money and I want to go back there because the powers of hell and the temptation of sin is so great but because my eyes are fixated on the Father's house, I keep pushing on. I overcome them because my eyes are fixated on the Father's house. And, And while I'm still a long way off, I see this man and he's running at me. And he's running fast. Like he is on a mission. He's running at me. And I realize it's my father and he's running. I'm like, is he going to hit me? Is he going to tell me to leave? Is he even, does he even know who I am? Does he think I'm just some strange guy that's wandering onto his land? What is going on? And he's running at me. And he stops. And I, I see him recognize me. I see his eyes fill with tears. And it's not tears of being mad at me. It's not tears. Uh, it is tears of joy and compassion and love. And then he runs the rest of the ten feet. And even though I'm so dirty and so undesirable, he hugs me. He wraps me up. And he says, I love you. He doesn't even give me a chance to tell him what I did wrong. He, he says, I love you. Come home. And then he says, take off his dirty clothes and put a robe on him 
because he's royalty to me. And then he says, put sandals on his bloody feet because he's journeyed a long way. And he says, put a ring on his dirty hands because that's how much I love him. And then he says, kill the fattened calf that we've been preparing for a while now and let's have a party. And he throws this party for me that I didn't deserve. And then Jesus says, that is the love that the Father shows us. Uh, before Bo comes up here, I, y'all know the story. This is the story of the prodigal son. And I grew up in the church and, and I grew up listening to the story and I heard prodigal son and I always thought it meant comeback kid. And I don't know if y'all know what the real definition of it is, but I didn't until yesterday. And so I'm looking at what the definition of the prodigal son is. And I found two definitions of the word prodigal. And the first definition was spending money or resources freely and wildly. I was like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Like the, the son goes out and he spends what the father has given him freely and wildly. And then the second definition is what changed my perspective of the story a little bit. And the second definition says having or giving something on a lavish or generous scale. And so I thought, you know what? This story shouldn't just be called the prodigal son. This story should be also called the prodigal father because he lavishly and generously gives us his love when we don't deserve it. Let's pray before Bo comes up here. God, we thank you so much for lavishly and generously giving us your love. Thank you so much uh, that we can come home to you. God, I want to pray for everybody in this room who's journeyed away from you, who's journeyed into a distant land, God, I ask that you will help them to get up and move back to you, God. And uh, as Bo comes up here, I ask that you allow him to continue to speak to us from this chapter and your word, God. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Two sides of the story. It says at the beginning, so he divided the property among them. And then... A few days later, as Nolan mentioned, not long after that, the younger son set off for a distant country. Uh, at the beginning of the, son, of the story, of the parable, we get to meet the father. Uh, and our first interaction with the father is really fairly simple. It's him being approached by this youngest son, uh, him being, as Nolan mentioned, being insulted by his youngest son. And then him having what I see is just an extremely awkward interaction. Interaction where he makes the decision to say yes. It was his prerogative. He, he could have done either way. Uh, this was a strange, strange, unheard of request. And he makes the decision to say yes. And then there's this awkward interaction, this awkward interchange where he divides the property between the two sons. And I was looking at this and you're thinking about where the father is coming from. And he wasn't naive. Uh, this, a lot of times I think we could look at it and we'd think, why didn't the father just say no? The father wasn't naive. He wasn't dumb. 
He knew exactly where his son was. With this being such an odd, such a strange, such an unheard of request, he knew exactly, relatively, what his son was going to do. He knew his son was so immature. He knew his son was immature enough to insult him like this. He knew his son didn't have the relationship with him that he needed because he was willing to do this to his father. He was willing to do this to his family. He was willing to leave. He loved him enough to let him go. And that's probably one of the hardest things as a parent, if there's any parents in here this morning who have experienced it, you know it. But I think with the prodigal son and the difference in the younger son and the older son, the older son was built to stay home. Uh, There's no little inkling that we get of the older son thinking, I want to go off. But the younger son, I think if he'd stayed home, it would have been absolutely terrible for him. That he had to leave home in order to ever have this real relationship with his father. We know from the context that they didn't have a good relationship. We know from the context that they weren't that close for him to do this. And for him to be able to ever come back home truly, for that to ever be his home, I think he had to leave home. And maybe that's some of you. Maybe some of you have experienced that. Uh, You left home and you had to come back home in the hard way. Uh, It wasn't this fun coming back home. It was a way where you knew you hurt your family and spiritually maybe you knew you hurt God and you had to come back home the hard way. But to know this and to have the confidence in this that maybe for you, maybe for some of you, if you had never left, and we we don't love our past, but we love the way our past has shaped us. And you don't love that part of your past, but you love the fact that it brought you back to where you needed to be. That it brought you back home to God. Notice this. that says, while he was a long way off, he saw him and he starts to go to him. There's so much that's fun about this picture. One of my favorite things about this image that we get is that men are really good, and it's no different then than it is today, we're really good at hiding our emotion. Uh, we're really good at controlling our emotions, except on Saturdays in the fall, I think I've hugged like 50 complete strangers when Tennessee's won a game they haven't, weren't supposed to. But other than that, we're good. Uh, if it's not a major sporting event or a sporting event we're invested in, we're good at controlling our emotions, almost to a fault. We're good at keeping everything in, and that's why I absolutely love it. It's one of my favorite things in the world. I watch for it all the time to see a father let go, Uh, to see a father who controls their emotions so much of the time, and they just let everything out there, and they stop trying to hold it in. And we get to watch a father let everything out. See, the son is approaching like a whip dog. He's approaching like your dog, and you come home, and he's just chewed up your brand new leather couch, and you know what's happened. This isn't a son that's walking forward with confidence. He's walking forward with hope that he doesn't die. He's walking forward with hope that nothing bad, terrible happens to him. And what he gets is the exact opposite. He didn't tap his foot and wait on the front steps. He didn't cross his arms. He didn't say, he has to show me how bad he wants to get home. He has to show me how bad he wants to be a part of this family again. And then, then I'll accept him. Once he's earned his keep, 
once he's shown that he's responsible enough because just walking down that road is not enough. He's, he's obviously skinny. He's obviously hungry. He may just want a meal. He's got to show me how bad he wants it. No, that's the exact opposite of what the father does. It says, and he does everything that was opposite of culture for men at that time, and maybe still for us. He hikes up his robe, and he takes off running towards his son, overwhelmed with emotion. He embraces him, and he kisses him. And notice, it's not a word that we get the full effect of. The word for kissing here actually means many kisses. And so for a parent, maybe it's been a long time since you've done this, and my parents are in town today, so maybe they'll do this afterwards. But I know with Presley, when I'm out of town for a while, I cannot get enough of her kisses. But when I've been away from her, I miss her so much. So mom, dad, as soon as we embrace after this, you got to kiss me all over the place. Uh, but we, we just want to hug and hug and hold so tightly because they were gone. It's this feeling of he was never going to see him again, even though he held all hope out that he was. And he embraces him, he holds him tightly, and he kisses him over and over again. Notice something else here, that he recognizes his son. It's a little simple thing, but the fact that he was afar off. Like I said, this wasn't something that was normal in the culture, especially for the leader of the house to run, uh, to, to run a long distance out there. And that makes me 100% positive in that even though he was a long way off, he recognized that it was his son. And see, for us, we, we get this. We've seen people who have lived wild lives. You know, coming back home when you've been gone for seven and a half years, I see the difference when I see people that I went to high school with. I know the people that have lived hard lives and the people that haven't. I know the people that have lived rough lives and the people that haven't because it makes you look differently at the time. And so he's coming home in the middle of living this rough life, and I'm sure he looks so different, so skinny, so gone, so empty, probably doesn't look like the same person. But no matter how much out here physically we feel like we look so different, we're unrecognizable, God always recognizes you. He always recognizes you and he's waiting to run towards you. Notice he doesn't just tell the son he's forgiven. He shows him. Sun arrives and there's this moment where he's got this speech that he's been practicing for so long. A uh, speech that he's perfected on this long journey home from a distant country. And as he arrives, and his father kind of throws him off, uh, you know that he had to be shaken up, and he had to get the tears out and get the emotions out. But then he kind of, you can picture him dusting himself off, and he's saying, okay, I've got to get this out. Everything that I've been preparing, Father, I've sinned against you. And you see the father do something totally uncalled for, un. un- Uh, unexpected, he stops listening. It says, but the father went and said, kill the fatted calf, get the robe, get my ring. We're going to have a celebration. See, so many times we send mixed messages about forgiveness. Instead of throwing a celebration when somebody wants forgiveness, it's more of an intervention it's more of this somber affair where we, we're kind of, we're really hoping, we're, we really hope that you're changing. 
I mean, we, we hope enough that we may be even surrounding you like a family. But in all honesty, it's more like an intervention where there's lots of thoughts going through everybody's head of, I don't know what you're going to do. I don't know how this is going to turn out. I don't know where you're going to end up. I just hope this is the time that it's for real. And that's not the way the Father demonstrates forgiveness. It's not the way that the Father demonstrates for us to forgive. When we forgive, and when our Father forgives us, it's done. And all these other things, and you can bend, and you can get counseling, and you can get uh, things out in the open, but it's done. It's forgiven. And we can't keep sending a mixed message of not truly of saying somebody's forgiving, but not truly showing it in the way that we live. Final thought is that the father went out to both sons. There, with the younger son, there's no, like I said, there's no get your act together. There's no let's see what happens before we really accept him back. No, we need to make sure they make things right first. And that's what we do sometimes. I'd say everybody in here is guilty at some point of having somebody seek your forgiveness or maybe seeking forgiveness of this church and thinking, well, they, they've caused a lot of pain. They've caused a lot of pain in our family, and they need to earn their place back first. And that's hard for us to grasp. That's hard for us to put together because we struggle with not functioning that way. We struggle with opening up that complete trust, but the father doesn't. And maybe we're more like the older brother. It makes us mad. And the reason that we get this little twinge is because we don't treat people this way. The reason we get a little twinge and a little sympathy for the older brother, and I've been guilty of it. I've been guilty of thinking, yeah, I get it. I get his perspective. I, I can sympathize. I can empathize with him. And maybe that's because we're not really forgiving people in the way that we need to forgive people. When we refused, for, refuse to celebrate, it shows we miss God's grace in our own life. So when the son comes up from the field and he asks the fellow servant, asks his servant about what's going on, and he refuses to go in to the celebration, it's a sign. It shows everything about his relationship with the father, too. That instead of going in and celebrating with his family, instead of recognizing how amazing his father is to love his brother like this, instead of understanding this is the same love that he gets from his father every single day, and now being able to be so happy that his brother that's been gone gets it too, he refuses to celebrate. It's because he's missed this grace in his own life. It's because he's missed what's going on in his own life. He's missed everything that's had, that he's had in his life. I like the way Timothy Keller puts it. He says, The younger brother was lost in his badness, but the older brother was lost in his goodness. Now, I ask you a question this morning. This morning, is that you? Because I know it's a lot of church people. We're bad about this. Not being lost in our badness. Honestly, the opposite. We're lost in our goodness. So it can happen really easily 
over time is that subconsciously as we grow in our faith and we kind of get being a Christian down and we become pretty good morally, what happens is we actually start to think we're good. We, we get tricked mentally into thinking we're good. Hey, I stayed home. I'm here all the time. I listen. I never miss. We get tricked into thinking we're good without God. And I think that's exactly what happened to the son here. When we know what we've been saved from, when we clearly see what we deserve and clearly understand our own sin, we're never going to feel this way. We're never going to miss the celebration over somebody coming home because we totally get who we are and who we've been and how we've been saved. In verse 28, it says, The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. Notice that the father went out for both in two different ways. With the younger son, it had to be when he was coming home. This really stuck out to me for the first time as I was studying this time, and it's one of my favorite passages. But he didn't go after the son when he was leaving because he knew he had to, had to go. He went after the son, younger son, when he was coming back home. This is the kind of person who had to leave to come back home. But notice the other perspective of this story and where I think it would hit home with a lot of church people, a lot of people that are lost in their goodness is that with the older son, he goes outside from the party and pleads with him. And maybe for a lot of us here, we need somebody to plead with us to make our faith real, to take it to what it's really meant to be, what it's really supposed to be. Verse 29, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. You, you, you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. When this son of yours squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fatting calf for him. He was angry. One of the biggest problems with so many supposed followers of Christ is that we're living at the house. We're working on the farm. Maybe we can say like the son, we're slaving for the father, but refusing to go into the celebration. You've kind of missed everything. You can be living in the house, working on the farm, slaving hard every day. But if you don't understand the celebration, if you don't understand God's grace, then we're missing everything. If you feel like right now for you that you're slaving away for the Savior, I'd say it's the same for us, that we have a jacked up perspective on God's grace we think we've got to slave away and if it's that feeling you know the younger brother the older brother he had this animosity he had this jealousy really that we get to see of his brother it was all backwards and I hope that this opened up his eyes and I hope it opens up our eyes that when we have a missed perspective and it's a feeling of slaving away versus notice at the very beginning the small piece we get to see of the father it says he divided his property between them. He already had his inheritance. He already had his inheritance. He knew what he got. And he still hadn't really received it. 
he still hadn't really understood the whole story because he was so angry all the time that he didn't get to live with the true love of everything that he received. And the same thing happened to us. We've already received our inheritance. It's waiting for us. The work is done. There is no image that should ever be used of us slaving because we're receiving. We're blessed. There's a reaction in our life of everything that we get to do now. We've received our inheritance. Journeys are fun. As Nolan mentioned, we've had a long journey this summer. Uh, we've gone a whole lot of places. We're tired. Uh, we're really tired, but in a good way. One of my favorite parts of any journey, especially the older I get and when I leave home without Chelsea and Presley, is coming home. And I'd say most people get that. There's not much like when you've been gone. As much fun as you're having, as much of a joy as it's been, that feeling of coming home. And even more so spiritually. When it comes to whether you're the younger son that Nolan talked about, and your distant country has really been a distant country, it's been pretty much going as far away from God as you physically could, almost being angry and wanting to just push away, push away, push away. Or maybe your distant country is in this church building. Maybe your distant country has been coming in here and checking into a pew and then checking out. Checking in and checking your card and then checking out. And this is all it's been about. Whatever it's been and wherever you are, I promise there's no better feeling in this life than to come home. Come home from your journey. The Father is waiting to run to you, to hug you, to embrace you, and to give you a ton of kisses. If we can help you in any way this morning, would you come as we stand and sing?